Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. This is the time we have together on a Friday, or maybe you're listening on a Saturday, um, when we can, or whenever you want to listen, you can listen to a podcast of Week in Review on your own time. But we try to figure out what went on this week, some of the interesting developments, and, and we get a chance to explore them with local journalists like Seattle Times editorial writer and columnist Claudia Rowe. Hi, Claudia. Hey. Hi, good, thanks good, for having good me. Good to have you again. Seattle Met Deputy Editor Allison Williams. Hi, Allison. Hi, nice to be here. And with you, a Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter, Alex Halverson. Welcome back, Alex. Thanks for having me, Bill. You can watch the show on Facebook or YouTube. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Let us begin by checking in on our officially declared homelessness state of emergency in Seattle and King County. I think that's an eight-year-old uh, state of emergency now. To help address the emergency, the county hired some people who have personal experience with being homeless. Some of those staff are now facing possible layoffs. So, Claudia, the Seattle Times is asking good questions about how this has gone down and unraveled this way. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds fantastic to hire people with um, who have who are homeless or have recently been homeless to help um get people off the street in this program, Partnership for Zero. Um, But the story in the Seattle Times this week said that it was a pilot program and that it is being ended and that the 38 people who, some of them, um, will be laid off. They were making a really good salary, about $80,000, the story says. Mm -hmm. Um, However, so that's great. That's, you know, more than I've made many years as a reporter. But... um, Fantastic. But to leave people in the lurch, to not inform them that this was a pilot program that could go away, which is the implication of the story, seems pretty ironic that it could invent, you know, potentially thrust these people back into homelessness if they don't have an income. Do we know that the county didn't tell them this is a, a potentially temporary arrangement or, or said or implied this was a permanent job? So the uh, employees interviewed in the story said that they weren't told that it could, I think you said this in your notes, crumble. I think that's a really good word for it. It crumbled before it was uh, it was set to end. Um, and a lot of them said, hey, I gave up my housing voucher for this opportunity. I signed a lease. And as we know, leases are usually a year. They're longer than five months and they're hard to get out of and they're expensive and that rent comes due every month. So a lot of the people interviewed kind of gave voice to this. I knew maybe it would end one day. I didn't know it was going to end five months into this. And I think in a larger sense, it represents how this great sounding program paying people who've experienced homelessness um, to use their expertise and uh, put them in a, a job where they can make a good salary is not a fix because like any job, it can go away. And even a good salary for a few months is not enough to catapult somebody past falling into homelessness again. And I think for the authority to have not recognized that their own jobs even are not a fix, there's not a simple employ a person and they don't have to worry about homelessness anymore. And it's just really representative to how the choices you make, like giving up a voucher for um, because you'll be making more money. And now when you make no money, you are being sent to the back of the line um, for supportive services. It's a network that can that needs more than one support underneath a person to to move out of homelessness, and a good paying job on its own just is not enough. But there, I think there are questions, frankly, more questions raised by the story um, that were that are unanswered to to, to my mind, and primarily, um, some of the philanthropies involved with funding this said, you know, we haven't been asked for all the money that we promised. Like there's that, that was in the story that there's, you know, sort of still money on the table and not a clear explanation. Well, then why is it ending? I, I don't understand that. And I, I think that's a, 
a huge question mark. And it was noted in the story that um, it has seen some successes. There was it fell short of some of the goals of the number of people who was hoping to get out of homelessness. And and I, I'm talking now about those being served by the program, not the employees that we were talking about earlier. But there were still some successes there. The numbers were a little bit lower, but they a existed. lot lower. I think. I mean, I think it fell well short of the goal. I think it was like 200 and something, something people were, were helped. And 230 were, out of 900 identified in the yeah. area. Yeah. So less than 30 percent. I think for our listeners, it's hard to figure out what the takeaway or takeaways are here because we have so many overlapping situations of was there a lack of candor or explanation, uh, the, the, the building of the program to begin with, the, the idea of um, putting this kind of responsibility on, on, on the people who were in these jobs, the administration of the program. So I wonder if we can help listeners who might be thinking, what should I think or what should I ask? To me, it feels like, and Claudia brought this up, there's questions uh, raised. It seems like a lack of oversight or something. I mean, in the story, the, the agency says we ran out of funding and funding was mostly through phil- philanthropic foundations. Um, and then like you said, Claudia, the donors said, well, we weren't asked for the rest of the money. Later on in the story, some of the people said we weren't offered severance after we were laid off. So why isn't this agency going to the donors saying, hey, we don't have the funding to sustain this. Can we receive the rest of the money to help these people out? That just, to me, seems like a lack of oversight in the agency. To me, I, I the takeaway I take from, from watching sort of many proclamations about we're going to end homelessness, and this is going back you know, at least 15 years. This is before the emergency. There was a proclamation in, I don't know, 2005, maybe. Um, You know, we're going to end homelessness. To me, it's hubris. It's, hey, that's, that's a fantastic aspiration. But has anyone ever done it anywhere? Maybe it would be more um, practical, realistic and productive to, um, I don't know, be a little, a little more, more pragmatic, and less aspirational in in our aims. Is that more typical of the Seattle area compared to other cities? Because I can see the the logic of uh, a a local government saying N- too many, t- too much homelessness. You know, any homelessness is too much, or pedestrian traffic deaths, or whatever it is that they're saying we're going to. You know, or youth incarceration. This is a goal. We're being aspirational here, right? I I think. There's there's something to that to rallying you know rallying appetite to fix these social problems. However, when it goes on and on year after year after year, um, I I think ultimately it erodes the confidence of voters that anything can be done, hmm. and that might be a, a worse problem. And I think there's also to Claudia's point there there could be a difference between a personal drive to want to see an end to homelessness and practical goals for an organization. I'm just thinking of um, an interview I did years ago with Marty Hartman, who was then head of Mary's Place. And she had a very personal drive to never have a single child in the area be homeless, be sleeping outside. And she had that absolute driven. But that didn't mean that they didn't, as an organization, operate, not consider themselves a failure if they didn't achieve that in any given night. And I just I remember thinking that you can have a very strong personal drive and you need that kind of passion, but maybe making more realistic goals for the organizations for the implementation of programming could be more effective. Right. If your organization doesn't have a reachable goal, it kind of has no goal. There's it's it's it doesn't function. I agree with yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Or you're looking at it as a short-term thing, like a, a crisis that you're going to come in and solve and have it done as opposed to mm-hmm. a long-term like reality of you know, the city. Yeah. And one wonders if the people um, at the top of such an organization truly believe that. Do they really believe that? Mm, that's and interesting. To your point, Bill, like if, they, if they're just saying it and they don't truly believe it, then what really is their goal? And that could be bad for culture as well. You know, you're asking people to do something that maybe they don't, a mission that they don't think is achievable, even if it's a good aspiration. Anyway, I want to move to another story on this, sort of on this topic, another uh, another example of good intentions. You know, King County doesn't want to prosecute every young person accused of a crime. Sometimes they want to keep juveniles out of the court system. Claudia, will you tell us why that is 
not working well? I don't know if it's working or not, and that is the problem. Mm. Nobody can tell what's going on. Um, maybe the people deeply involved with the program, with the, the county's um, juvenile diversion program is called Restorative Community Pathways, which is confusing because one of the groups that was part of this was Community Passageways. Mm. Um, they are no longer part of this effort because of some problems. Um that they may have been the victim of. <clears throat> they may not have caused uh, the group itself may have been the victim of their own internal problems. However, the overarching problem is a lack of transparency. And um, that problem has um, been ongoing and eventually became frustrating enough to King County Councilman Reagan Dunn that he fired off a letter to the state auditor demanding a performance and financial audit. And you'll have to sort of, you know, read my editorial this weekend to find out where we where we come down on this. But essentially, um, he he asked the state to 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 evaluate the program, and the state said we can't because there's not enough data to evaluate, and that may be by design, said the state. Um, so that's interesting. Well, it's, let me tease this out a little because I could imagine that a program that aims to measure the outcomes of someone not going into the court system and then outcomes over how much, how long a period of time and compared to what other way of dealing with this person, you know, that, that does sound inherently hard to quantify. True. Well, you could, first of all, quantify recidivism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, kids have been uh, directed into this program for two years now. Um, some of them were facing felony charges. Most of them were facing misdemeanor charges. Um, you could – it is true from what I understand that the program doesn't only want to measure recidivism but other goals that young people may have. Um, but they're not laid out in any kind of clear uh, public place. What are, the, what are the kids' goals? How many have been met? Um, you know – the county is saying it's too early. But, you know, it's like $13 million in at this point. It's a lot of money. It's two years. Hundreds of kids should be able to say something. And and they have said, after being pushed, a few things, but nothing about recidivism. And so you think they're not tracking this? No, I think they are. But, but they're I think not they're happy. not making it public. But it is public money. Okay. Are they allowed to not make it public? Their, their they say they tracking? will make it public, oh, okay. but not yet. Okay. All right. So I, again, just to get back, I think yeah. ultimately that undercuts confidence. Right. The the real problem is maybe groups on the ground are doing fantastic work. We don't know, and since it's public money, um, eventually the public is going to get impatient to know what's going on with our money, and can you tell us something? And, and if you don't provide that information, people get jaded, people get pessimistic, and it ultimately, I think, could undercut the sustainability of what is possibly a really revolutionary program. And do you think that it does more harm to withhold that information than it would be to possibly share data that is not encouraging or doesn't show improvement yet? Do you think uh, the public confidence in something like that is worse when there's a lack of transparency than when it's bad news? Well, maybe we shouldn't be confident. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a really, really good question. I suspect that if the results had been fantastic, that we might see um, officials trumpeting those mm -hmm. results. And they're not. I don't know. Yeah. But hanging over it, I just wonder, how, Are we? would we be able to compare apples to apples? For example, what are we comparing it to? Locking kids up and... and um, it, would we be, and, and is there a way to compare those well, two? I mean, with options? any data, there's context, there's presentation, yes. um, and you know the you know the most charitable read on their response could be that they're trying to put the the hard data into context to tell the story that they think is most representational. The less charitable you know read would be that it's uh, not what they want it to be, and they're holding back on it, or um, are not making it a priority to measure whether the system is working. I mean, there's just so many, and I think as Claudia was saying, if, 
as the public, we don't know, mm-hmm. but it could be many of those things. My impression is that one of the sort of um, guiding ideas behind this is community autonomy, right? Like really community-based grassroots groups working with kids in the community. That's fantastic, right? P- possibly. Um, it it demands a kind of nimbleness and autonomy that might be kind of antithetical to a bureaucratic government program. Mm -hmm. Is there a way for the county to increase its oversight, demand more transparency, but not erode that autonomy? That's a great question. I think that the answer to that question depends on um, who you are, right? Like, I'm just a journalist. I don't know. I'm not in it. I think probably people on the ground would bristle at that, Um, you know, would say, hey, don't, don't be, you know, counting every minute that we spend everything we do every decision we make trust us right and i think that the government officials would say right but it's been two years and there has been some um there have been some problems with at least one of the groups in terms of financial management and in terms of hiring um so is there ever a threat of withholding funding from the program or i haven't heard it yet but i suspect that if enough council people get um, exercised enough about it, and if the community increasingly—I mean, it's a lot of money—and mm-hmm. and if we don't see results, why would people feel like that should continue? Okay, so is this? Um, you said a, a King County Council member, Reagan Dunn, what is calling for this analysis? Is it forthcoming? When should we expect to learn more about? Are the county's attempts to keep some kids out of the court system? Well, the county says that they will um, potentially um, people could can look for recidivism data at the end of 2024. So there is um, some talk about having an outside group um, evaluate the program at that point. Mm-hmm. But the state out auditor, as I mentioned, said she's not going to get into it because there's not enough data to make it worth her while, essentially. Okay. All right. Uh, well, since we're on this theme this week of, of good intentions becoming complicated, let's, uh, let's pick up uh, right in a community garden after we take a little break here on Week in Review. You're listening to Claudia Rowe there from the Seattle Times, Allison Williams, Seattle Met, Alex Halverson, Puget Sound Business Journal. I'm Bill Radke. We are discussing the week gone by, and we'll be right back. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke. Seattle is about to dismantle a community garden in a public park. This garden dates from the racial justice protests of 2020. The group that planted this garden is not okay with the removal. Allison, why did they plant it and why is it being pulled out? Well, it dates back to uh, the summer of 2020. If you remember the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest or CHOP, I hope I got that acronym correct. Um, It was an area that I think there was some social distancing circles area, sort of a discussion area. And some people planted in Cal Anderson Park um, a a bunch of different plants after the encampments were moved out of the park after CHOP. It was a very tumultuous time. Uh, The plants sort of remained. I think they were maybe sort of flew under the radar a little bit, and you had people coming in to take care of them in the park. And at least um, some of these plants are vegetables, produce. Some of them are produce. Yeah. Um, I know, I think in recent years, they've, they've moved a little bit more to like native plants, just because I, I don't know if it's the best. They, they found as much success with the um, the food right. plants. But you had a group of people coming together. Black Star Farmers became the sort of organization, um, the coalition of folks that were coming in to take care of the garden. 
And I believe they've been in discussions with the Seattle Parks Department for a couple years. Um, it's uh, about the future of it. It's in an area that the parks calls the Sun Bowl. It's sort of the middle of Cal Anderson Park. Um, and Cal Anderson, in the middle of Capitol Hill, it's a park with uh, courts and fields and playgrounds. It's a, it's a very busy big park. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they were told recently that it was that they were going to be resodding that area and that the garden had to go with very short notice. <laughs> And, you know, the Parks Department is saying that they offered other locations. Um, I know Black Star Farmers, they've started a petition saying that they were not given, an, like, a reasonable place to move the garden to. Um, and, you know, for them, I think it symbolizes for the, the community that likes it. It memorializes uh, individuals <coughs> killed by police, but also a time when the Capitol Hill occupied protest was in that area. Um, and, yeah, so it's... You know, it comes as a shock to a lot of people, and I think the the groups that are looking to preserve the garden are saying that the space is not necessary for events. There are still events that are taking on being taking place around the garden. There's lots of other parts of the park in which events take place. But and the, then, city's, of course, the city the, is saying otherwise. Yes, that there. This is not just any place, right? It's a, it's it's designed to be a gathering place. I think there's uh, 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 electrical hookups, right? Water hookups. Yeah, the city describes it as a sort of natural amphitheater environment. Right. It's got electrical hookups, water hookups. There's a restroom there. Um, but Blackstar is saying, well, people are still holding events here. It's not like we're in the way. Um, I haven't seen anything from the city countering that argument. Now, obviously, that could just go back and forth, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. One one um, notable absence at least as far as anything I've read, is the council person representing that district, which uh, who I believe is Kashama Swant. Um, no, I haven't seen her quoted on this anywhere. Have, have you guys? Nothing. Um, this is, you know, an uncharacteristic silence. Hmm. And, you know, I believe the Seattle Times story, if I remember correctly, uh, talked to a, a separate Cal Anderson Alliance, uh, you know, people interested in the in the park who did not have a stance on the garden but said that they were concerned about things like the bathrooms that are located very close and that are not open um you know a reliable amount of time which is a a topic that's come up recently of discussing public restrooms across the city so i think there's a sense from some people of saying hey parks department we have some priorities and this removing this garden is not one of them and changing the use or, you know, ex- extending the use of that space is less important than some other park infrastructure. But you mentioned the the city has offered, I don't think the, I don't think Black Star Farmers is saying we didn't, we haven't been offered any alternatives. They just, they couldn't seem to agree on, on a place for this garden to, to be transplanted to. My, One, my uh, understanding, there was no consensus on a, a reasonable relocation spot for it yeah yeah from the coverage it seems like the city has suggested places um behind the rainier community center um in rainier beach um i think there was a few other places thrown out there from the comments i've read in capitol hill blog and seattle times black star um once they they want it in cal anderson park they want it in the density of capitol hill and like allison brought up there's there's a kind of symbolism with it being in cal anderson rather than it moving to another neighborhood and becoming a, a pea patch yeah but when, the city could say there's also a symbolism in uh, the city not being able to say, here's what we want this park used for and rules are rules. Well, and I think uh, somebody I, I read pointed out to me that uh, Black Star Farmers had also reached out to the unhoused population in the area to look out for the plants and to be a part of it and to find some ownership there. And I think it's it's such a community-led uh, endeavor that it there's this feeling that the parks should be able to adjust and make room for that right. rather than say rules first, um, especially when I don't think they've been able to come up with any um, specific events or other community actions that are being blocked by the garden. Yeah, park space can evolve. There are lots of different community uses besides sod. Right. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so so do we know what's going to happen Next, is there a deadline? I think it's coming up pretty soon. It, I mean, they said to... as soon as Friday, I believe, but I, they said it could be later. And I know that the Black Star Farmers have uh, started a petition, mm. um, and there's sort of attention being drawn to it right now. But I don't know when the next action will come. Okay. Yeah, Black Star Farmer today, a Capitol Hill blog reported, they're having just an all-day thing today for events. They're um, uh, all-ages garden party, tea and yoga. Um, they're pretty much planning on being at the park until 10 p.m., just a sort of 
they can't kick us off if we're on here. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like demonstration. Yeah. I mean, who knows what's going to happen there if uh, if people are refusing to go, you know, lying down, et cetera. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, okay. Also, uh, this week, here's another longtime protest in uh, statewide in Washington has been against companies hiding how much they pay and to whom. And our state finally passed a new law. It took effect this year saying companies have to include pay and benefits in their job postings. That's supposed to make pay more equitable across genders, races. It's also so a company won't just say, well, how much were you making in your last job? Uh, Alex, why do some people think this is this law is not working? Uh, like any law, the people who don't want it and uh, businesses did not want it in Washington. There was a lot of protests from business alliances, specific employers. Um, they found like little loopholes. Uh, you can see this anecdotally. If you go on a jobs board, I'm sure you've seen some salary ranges that seem not in the spirit of the law. I've seen one meaning large ranges. Yeah, you know they'll range from like fifty thousand to one hundred twenty thousand, then have little parentheses that says experience matters, and it's like okay, well, I don't think that's the spirit of the law. But there's mm. also um, some employers just aren't including the salary ranges according to these lawsuits. Now, some of that might just be administrative errors. It might be national companies that have job postings in the Seattle area or in Washington in general, and there's a technical error. Um, this lawsuit is basically just making it so that those employers have to take this into consideration when they post wherever they do in Washington. And um, if they don't, then they'll probably pay a fine or something, or the law will become more robust if it's ruled in favor of of employees. Yeah, that's the question, right? Well, first of all, maybe we should back up and say, why do I just told you reasons why uh, people want pay transparency, it's called. Why do so many companies not want to post salary ranges? I think it's more leverage to the job applicants. They don't want to. They don't want to pay people more than they have to. It's like you said. It it stops the employer from going. Okay, how much were you expecting to get paid? Mm. And some people, especially you know specific genders and um, uh, and other people, they will undercut what they think they should get paid or anything just to get the job. Or if people are desperate, they'll undercut what they sh- should be paid to get the job. And employers are kind of counting on that. And it also really makes public, even when you're not particularly interested in a job. It's been interesting to see some companies come out and see what they're what they're paying for certain positions, and it it does change your opinion of the company. And that's a very minor aspect of this, but I've started clicking on job listings that I'm not, in fact, job hunting, but just curious. Oh, what what does that pay? What are they saying that they do? And I'm I'm shocked at how little, and then sometimes how much different positions pay across Washington. So I think the more transparency, like, gives more insight into how labor is valued, and that always just gives more power to the labor. It also gives more leverage and power to people who are already employed by an employer. If you see a job posting for your job go up and it's considerably more than you make, well, you're probably going to bring that up to your direct report. Right. Um, Really good point. Yes, which employers, again, do not want. Now, where it gets kind of sticky is some companies kind of do have large salary ranges. You see this in tech a lot. They'll have pay bans depending on the level. Um, Experience matters, I hear. It really does. You know, at a company like Amazon, they um, they have internal guidelines on pay, pay bans. And I've seen them and they can range 100,000 to 200,000. So if that's posted, it, it's going to look like it's not in the spirit of the law. So maybe if this law gets more robust, if they put stricter uh, ranges that could affect these companies. Um, so you might see that. But then I think, I mean, there's no there's no way to go and say if they have a narrow band and then somebody comes in and negotiates a higher pay, that doesn't, I, it would not be counted as a violation of this law. And I think that does still happen when there are narrow bands, just sort of, again, anecdotally, what I've heard from friends is that uh, there's still room to negotiate, even if you are coming in and they offer you the top of whatever they've listed. But, it they, doesn't, can't give it, you, but they can't give you less? Than the range I mean, I guess that listed. would be a violation, but I, I'm sure like, there's so many ways to come around and say, oh, it's a slightly different job than the one we advertised mm. and conditions changed. Again, there's loopholes. They're yeah. always going to find the loophole. Yeah. I mean, I just the one benefit I could see is the expectation that salary is not a private matter is a good thing to change. And I think the more because the way that you uh, convince people not to talk about their salaries is to make it taboo um, and to make it act like it's a bad thing. And I, I think that just reminding people that sharing how much you make is good for all of the workers is, has been positive. Does anyone know whether 
we are one of the the only one of the few states that require this uh, pay transparency. It's very few, and we weren't the first. I believe Colorado was the first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to say New York. Uh, requires New York it as might well. have it as well. They really Colorado really set the blueprint, and, and you know they'll boast that they set uh, set the blueprint, but it's not common among states. Mm-hmm. And did it go perfectly in Colorado, or did they have? I, I imagine we would have the same issue. With, yeah, with a new law. Yeah, I don't. Out. I couldn't find anything about a lot of lawsuits there, but there were companies getting dinged. There were fines for violating it, just just not providing the salary range, um, or you know, older job postings. They, they were getting sticky with the statute of um, limitations on that. So they passed an amendment, and they ma- they gave the law more teeth, which I think you could see here. And one of the things that is, um, I think, still to be decided is whether this becomes a class action. If it does become a class action, it's going to potentially have, you know, a lot more weight to it, right? A lot more influence on the decision. Yeah. Okay. So when do you think – this is going to be very interesting because we'll get – we'll see who is, uh, I guess, a court deems to be in the right. And then there's the question of – teeth as you said yeah does the legislature act on it does it in the next session do they pass an amendment that that gives it more teeth right it really depends on these sort of dominoes of okay how the how do the courts rule and then how do the legislation feel about those rulings okay so we might be hearing about this in the new session that starts in january yeah okay you're listening to week in review on kuaw we're running down some of the the big developments of the week. I'll have a few more for you uh, after we take this break, and we'll check back in on the old office market. Are are, uh, are, are people demanding office space? Is office space being filled up or just uh, abandoned faster than uh, faster it can be than it can be bought? Um, and we'll uh, talk about having a coke and a smile, possibly a gasp on a state ferry. Um, <laughs> stay tuned. We're going to be right back. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, glad to be surrounded by excellent local journalists like Puget Sound Business Journal's Alex Halverson and Seattle Met's Allison Williams and the Seattle Times' Claudia Rowe. Uh, here are a few of the stories we haven't mentioned yet. I mean, we have the, the various local demonstrations over the Gaza violence, pro-Palestine demonstrations, pro-Israel demonstrations, sometimes clashing uh, pro-peace, pro-humanity. We've got local folks directly affected, people trapped over there, loved ones endangered, and this possible chaotic mass evacuation, just a, a, a an unfolding situation that could well be different by the time you're listening to this over the weekend or, or, or on your Week in Review podcast. Some of the other local developments this week actually were, were clustered in the business world. I saw REI laying off about 275 retail employees. Um, I hope that doesn't make it harder for me to find information about the paddleboard I'm considering. But you know, no, it's some REI. They're just so large, and there's and there's so many things in there that it always makes me. Of course, I would always like thousands of employees crawling over every item. But um, uh, yeah, I guess about two percent of REI's in-store workforce is uh, is getting laid off. Uh, Microsoft officially acquired Activision Blizzard, which makes the Call of Duty game. Uh, Diablo. I'm pretending I know what Diablo is, but I can tell you that it's a game. Candy that Activision Crush. Candy Crush. <laughs> there, I, I know that. Sixty-nine billion dollars. Yeah, very glad I don't have to cover that anymore. <laughs> Why? Uh, it's just been a long story. Yes. And every development is so minute. A lot of challenges to it, yes. right? From 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 not only the government but uh, other companies. Yeah. Yeah. But it went through. Uh, $69 billion acquisition. Uh, and so we'll see whether that seems to hurt competition. Didn't they also just get dinged with a $29 billion tax bill? That's next on my list. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> exactly. You're paying attention, Claudia. Like a journalist, the IRS says Microsoft owes almost $29 billion in back taxes and penalties and interest, um, there, which Microsoft disputes, right? I say we, yeah, we're challenging a, that. It's a really ongoing thing. Basically, in the gist of it, the IRS doesn't like that Microsoft tries to channel profits to a little factory it owns in Puerto Rico. So, to avoid taxes. Yes. That's sort of the yeah. uh, the crux of it. Transfer pricing, they call it. Yeah. Okay. So Microsoft is appealing that. So that's 
that could take years for that to go through. Probably. $29 billion tax bill. Okay, um, a couple other items that uh, we haven't mentioned. We had um, uh, higher power bills coming in the new year. Seattle City Light says that it's going to increase its rates. I haven't seen a, a number on this. but uh, there, I believe the increase, if I remember correctly, just uh, looking through an article on it, it's there's going to be a surcharge. There's also a rate increase. I think it was 4% each. And oh. then there's maybe a, a, another charge that will be coming on top of that. So oh. an average of, I think it said about uh, $9 a month or about 18 per um, period. I know most of us get our bills every other month. Uh, yeah. So like that, that I believe was the average. But uh, it came from, you know, them sort of blowing through their rainy day fund uh, in this past year of lower hydroelectric uh, uh, production. This and how much of that is drought? How much of that is spilling water over for the sake of fish? How much? Then we had those fires that we, we had the fire near the uh, near the dam. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't do know not the know. mix, this but is... we'll we'll learn more. Yes. Thank you. You knew more <laughs> than I did. Um, I just uh, just sort of grabbed that on the way in. Uh, rate hike coming, and we're supposed to be. Saving water. Water still, even despite, I know we've all seen a lot of rain outside, but I've heard that they are still working on building up uh, the reservoirs. So no long, long, long hot showers. Right. <laughs> but but long, long hot showers is okay. <laughs> I mean, it's fall in the Northwest. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Right. Uh, just one more item that, that you uh, flagged. I hadn't seen it anyway, Allison. Is this the Kraken? Sorry, zero and two so far, yet to win their. It's early. It's, it's early. very <laughs> early. Uh, but tell, but what's going on with this new logo they have on their jersey? Unusual. Logo. Well, I was I was watching the beginning of the hockey season, and one thing I noticed, not just with the Kraken, but some other teams, is they've got kind of a new placement on jerseys where they have ads, and like so many other sports, uh, the league is introducing advertisements on the actual uniforms. Sometimes they're not even advertisements. I think there was one team that had a some uh, something that was a salute to a, an owner that had died. Um, but at the Kraken, their patch um, is for the Muckleshoot tribe and was very curious about that and where that stood as a sponsorship versus a sort of salute to a local tribe. Um, I was talking to somebody at the Kraken to better understand it. And it is a sponsorship, but it's one that kind of comes with more kind of community connections with um, youth sports programming and building some facilities and um, indigenous artwork at Climate Pledge. And I found that really interesting because, you know, there are teams that have like Caesar's Sports Desk book or something on their jerseys. Um, And it's the kind of thing that the Kraken is they're sort of they're building who they are right now. I mean, they're they started pretty much from scratch a couple of years ago, and they're sort of trying to show who they are as a team and where they fit in in Seattle. And I think Partners, partnering with a local indigenous tribe, something that they've you know brought up and worked into their programming from the very beginning. It says a lot about the kind of team that I think Seattle expects and the vibe. And it's really maybe a little bit at, at odds when I think of the NHL right now. They just canceled their use of uh, special jerseys during warm-ups to salute different organizations because they had used to have a Pride Night was one of them, a gay Pride Night, and right. some NHL players refused to wear the jerseys. So now they've said, okay, no, no more of those jerseys and you can't even wear colored tape on your equipment to salute Pride Night anymore. Mm-hmm. And when you see that's where the league is going, and I just I think when it comes to thinking about just progressive ideas, you see a different story uh, with the Kraken right now. I mean, will remains to be seen whether the Kraken players, some hockey players have said they're going to wear multicolored tape on the Pride Nights regardless, even though they've been told they can't. So I don't know if any Kraken players will do that. Mm. But um, but yeah, you, just, you see that, that muckle shoot um, symbol on all the jerseys. And I, I think it was a really just sort of interesting change in, as, as the Kraken are showing, trying to figure out who they are. Yeah, I'm in, I'm interested in that because sometimes I roll my eyes at how much I think that sports fans over-identify with with a with a sports team just because it says the name of the city that they live near, <laughs> you know, on their shirt. So they're but but th- this, this is a case this sounds where like a, a like a sub message to someone in particular. Huh? Uh, well, uh, all the time uh, it comes up. But here's a case. But I so I like to hear I like to hear me proved wrong or or you know I like to hear examples of when a team is. Actual when there's something local about them, or like you know when Megan Megan Rapino seems very Seattle to me, and and uh, and so I'm I'm glad to hear when a team is leaning into its its roots and its community. I mean, I think it's just always interesting to what it says about the place. I believe their helmet uh, advertisement is something climate pledge related. Uh, 
related to the Amazon um, mm-hmm. sponsorship. So I, you know, I I don't want to read too much into it, but to me, it was just a very interesting addition to yeah. the Kraken story. Okay. Uh, speaking of sponsorships, anybody seen the Coke boat? <laughs> I have not seen it yet. I yeah. only saw it on KUOW. But yeah, on our exciting. website, org. There's no sponsorship in that. I did not get paid to say that. There's a, so there's a, an ad. There's a Washington State ferry that's on the Seattle-Bainbridge run that has a giant red Coca-Cola ad across its front. It's not subtle. It doesn't blend in harmoniously with the color palette, which I guess is the point of an ad. If it's glaring, then you notice it. And Alex, you're a, you you've been riding ferries for a long time. Grew up on the peninsula. Um, have you seen ads like like this in years past? It looked new ish to me. I've never seen it. Yeah. Uh, I used to commute on the Bainbridge ferry every day for a few years there. Um, and and sorry to Coca Cola, but the the ad looks ugly. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> it's going to be in all the photos of ferries, you know, parking into the waterfront. Um, but I've never seen it. But I, you know, the ferry system needs the dollars. Uh, ridership is really down still obviously it plummeted during the pandemic um total ridership is kind of increasing you know each year since the pandemic it's going up but it's nowhere near what it used to be i think on the bainbridge island route alone it's still down two million Mm -hmm. compared to peak times in 2019 per year um so, so they need every cent they can get there's the tension in it what price do you put on i mean i have a i have a washington state ferry Christmas ornament. Same. You know? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Okay. Did you steal it from me? <laughs> I might have. Okay. I haven't seen it. No. Uh, it, it's, you know, it is, and here's an overused word, icon, it, uh, iconic. Mm-hmm. And and so, but as you just laid out, these, this is not just a, uh, 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 not just a Christmas ornament. This is how people get around. And, and our ferry system is uh, in in dire straits. It's funny. I was thinking, I wonder how much more people would appreciate it if instead of a banner, it was like a, a sailing or a, like a second boat on certain routes. That yes, like, that's what know, we really want. Hey, I'm going to hop on the, the 230 Coke sailing. You'd be like, ah, thanks. Thanks, Coca-Cola. <laughs> Might have been a little more appreciative, just the, the number of boats. But I do like what Alex pointed out, which was um, despite Coca-Cola being absolutely plastered on the front of the ferry, we don't believe you can buy a Coca-Cola on a ferry. Last time I was on there as I a think it's all Pepsi distribution. Yeah, it's, it's uh, only only Pepsi products on board, so oh. <laughs> missed okay. opportunity. Well, that's that's a very eclectic of them. Um so the first of all, any any take on this Claudia? I love ferries, um but I'm not a soda drinker. So yeah. I don't have like a a, a dog in the You don't fight have a Coke in this fight? Coke or <laughs> no. Pepsi. It's it, by the way it doesn't it doesn't say drink coke it says essentially recycle your coke can so they've softened it in that sense. Um, your our, coke can that you can't buy on the ferry. On the ferry, they didn't say to recycle the Pepsi can. That would have been <laughs> generous of them. I I find it's interesting that from the picture, what I understand it's the end because the ferries you know they stay in the same orientation as they go back and forth yeah. the, with you know entrances on both ends so it's pointed towards Seattle right it's almost like a floating billboard that like Bainbridge never has to see it and <laughs> Seattle always has to well that is a triangle route they do you know they go to those three points uh, Southworth Vashon and oh no no, no, no I'm, no, I'm no. thinking yeah. of a different route yeah. no it's just but I just know that sometimes they they will come in and then back they do change direction sometimes I, just, I don't I know about Bainbridge, Bainbridge is going to complain if they ever have to flip it yeah good point good point <laughs> Uh, maybe they paid some, uh, you know, some. They paid somebody off, so they don't have to look at it. Uh, a KOW reporter, Casey Martin, suggested along the lines of what you're saying, Allison. If we knew, if it, if if we knew that was a new lifeboat or something, um, what are we getting for it? What are we getting for it? Uh, but it does go as the ferry, as the ferry system says. That's. Um, it's not self-sustaining. This is money. This is money we don't have to get through taxes. No, and it's really it, the ferry system is really important for the region. You yes, know, it, it's not a novelty ferry system. Uh, it's not a Christmas ornament. That's what I'm it's saying. Not. Yeah, and uh, it, service over the years has really degraded. You know, boats aren't as reliable. There's less boats. Yeah, and people count on it. I used. I grew up on the peninsula. You really counted on that boat to get from Edmonds to Kingston or Seattle to Bainbridge yes. or what have you. Yes, and we are used to seeing advertisements on buses on the light rail. Absolutely. So it's, but I think there's – I agree. There's something about that iconic 
color scheme and shape that's hard to see a, an advertisement on. And they, I think uh, someone from the fairies mentioned that they had done uh, a mustache for Movember before and a, yeah. a mask to salute healthcare workers. So they've put things on the fairy before, but I think we all under- feel it a little differently when it's an advertisement versus a nonprofit call to action. What what if the ferry system could get free cans of caffeinated Coke to give to its boat operators? <laughs> because we found out this week that the person piloting the ferry that rammed into the pilings in West Seattle probably fell asleep at the wheel right before the crash. Could be a tie-in there. How does that happen? I guess lack of sleep, but oh my God. Yeah, he said that he told the investigators he was on five to six hours of sleep at night dealing with the declining health of a family member. Oh, I feel bad. But. Yeah. I remember uh, there's a Washington State Fairway. There are two of them elsewhere in the state that go across very short rivers. Um, one's out on the Columbia River way in eastern Washington. And I rode one of them once and interviewed the ferry operator because he's in, he's not going all the way to Bainbridge. He's going across a couple hundred yards, turning around, going right back. And I remember asking, like, don't you ever get bored of this? Mm. And he said, but it changes every 15 minutes, his view. looking, And he like he meant it. He just he wow. was delighted by getting to look at this view all day. And I thought, well, good for you. That's awesome. There's a, that's the way to approach life. Okay. Yeah, so... By the way, yes. Well, fairies are just a very soothing. I can sort of see how somebody yes. could. There's sort of a lull to it. There's sort of a hum to the to the engine. There's sort of this very soothing quality to a fairy ride. And I don't doubt that if you were on it all day, I, I would get tired, I think. Agreed. Um, before we go and, and find a reason to, to smile, as we do every week, Alex Halverson Puget Sound Business Journal. Can we talk a little business? Absolutely. Because before the pandemic, Seattle couldn't add office space fast enough. Tech companies leasing buildings, prices soaring, pandemic hits, people stay home to work, companies leave their office buildings, downtown gets emptier, prices drop. So what is happening now? There's optimism in the market if you believe some brokerage firms. Uh, It's been really doom and gloom, especially later 2021, 2022, in the beginning half of 2023. uh, Tech tenants are no longer leasing huge spaces. They're getting rid of enormous chunks, right? Amazon has left a couple towers. Um, This past quarter, Oracle, DocuSign, and um, Meta, which aren't homegrown companies, but they expanded enormously in the 2010s. Well, this is Bellevue as well as Seattle, by the way. Yeah, neither market is immune to it. Um, you just see more availability in Seattle uh, because it, it's a bigger city and it had the companies first, but Bellevue is seeing this as well. But because these are enormous companies that expanded, they were the ones that squeezed a lot of these smaller firms, these startups, these mid-sized companies out of the market. Mm. So what brokers are telling us now is you're seeing more tenant demand. You're seeing more tours of buildings by these smaller firms that can get this really kind of prime class A real estate that they couldn't get for the past six, seven years. So no, you're not seeing the amazing things of Amazon signing a lease for 500,000 square feet in downtown, but you're going to break that chunk up piecemeal and you're going to get a bunch of new tenants in there, um, which is going to help with availability, which has been in a downward spiral in Bellevue and uh, Seattle for two and a half years now. And do you think that that means we're we're not likely to see conversation about alternate uses for downtown real estate. No. Meaning turning them into homes. I, I mean, yeah, that's I think the thing we've all said. If if mm-hmm. if we're not seeing the office yeah. usage, so no. I mean, there are buildings that can happen, but uh, this has been reported before. They have to be older, um, newer Class A buildings. Just really do not work for that the way they're built. Um, what you could see, and this actually happened in Bellevue a couple weeks ago, was there was this development plan for uh, mixed-use development. It was going to be two or three big office towers called the Cloudview Project. Well, um, it's kind of been on, in this holding pattern. We don't know who's going to lease it. Should we build it? About two weeks ago, they flipped the plans, and now it's going to be residential towers. So I think what you could see is all this new development, all this planned development, especially in Bellevue, is flipping, okay, if this is a mixed-use space with two office towers and a residential project, well, maybe now it's two residential towers and an office tower. I think Mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot more of that going forward, as opposed to flipping office towers into residential towers. Okay. And finally, you mentioned optimism, but that depends on your point of view, uh, whether you want prices to rise or fall. Is our is there any direction one way or the other? I mean, right now, they're falling. Falling, yes. But you get still. more tenants in there. Right. They think it's going to rise back up. Um, and some of these tenants aren't too small. TikTok just expanded in Bellevue. They grabbed a huge chunk of space from SAP, uh, Concur, a 
I think a data cloud company in Bellevue. Hmm. Um, I reported this week that Pokemon, the gaming company, is looking at a massive expansion in Bellevue. So it's not the Amazons, not the Microsofts like we had in the 2010s, but these other companies that are coming in and raising the rents back up. And Pokemon and TikTok owe to be young again. Yeah. And <laughs> and, and uh, was Pokemon already in Bellevue? Yeah. Uh, my question is, yes. why are they staying there and not coming into Seattle? I guess they just, they've been in Bellevue for <laughs> two decades now. Um, they moved from a smaller place into the Lincoln Square, either North or South Tower. I always get them mixed up. And they had, I think, around 100,000 square feet, 55 to 100,000 square feet. And now they're going into this new project called the 8, which is this big, beautiful Class A tower in Bellevue um, that hasn't had a lot of tenant demand. So now they're getting a bunch of space. Okay, time to thank you for that update. Time to wrap up the show. I, I, I try to make room for a smile. Uh, briefly, I at first I smiled when I heard Xfinity is now charging viewers more to watch Root Sports, which is the channel that carries Mariners and Kraken games and others. I smiled because last week... So many fans were outraged that the Mariners were not spending more money on great players to, so they can go to the playoffs. The Mariners are majority owners of Root Sports, so I thought, well, this means more money for the Mariners that they can spend on players. That's what fans want. But the team told me, quote, the Mariners will not receive any revenue from Xfinity's decision to raise the price. So I asked them, well, does Root Sports get any more money when Xfinity charges more for it? And they told me to ask Root Sports, so I'm trying to get an answer. But if Root Sports does not get any more money no matter how much viewers pay to watch it, I'd like to offer my services as a contract negotiator for them. And if the Mariners don't get any more money than when a company they own makes more money, again, my business consulting work is just skyrocketing. So Mariners. Yeah. It's like the Coke ad on the ferry boat. If we knew the money was earmarked for a pitcher, a hitter, Shohei Otani, maybe you don't mind. Anything else listeners could smile about this week? I mean, I took a walk yesterday, and uh, dry piles of leaves are not always a thing in the Northwest. I definitely grew up sh- raking wet piles of leaves, and then some about that crisp pile of dry leaves hits different. Mm. And so, been happy to see some of those. Yeah, I uh, I also have a, a sports related thing. Mm. Um, there's not a whole lot to smile about in these days. I yes. mean, it's been a pretty dark week, but. Um, when I watch Simone Biles coming back after, um, you know, for the world championships and, and just rocking it, coming back stronger, better than ever after, you know, who doesn't like a, a story about a, a, you know, a person who's counted out, she's yes. having problems and she comes back better than ever. And, and watching gymnastics is like, wow, what, what a human can actually do. It's nice to be reminded of what humans can actually do. We are overtime. Uh, we're in overtime right now, um, ending with sports. Um, so I, I just have time to say thank you to Claudia Rowe, Seattle Times editorial writer and columnist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Seattle Met deputy editor. Thank you, Allison Williams. Thanks, Bill. Puget Sound Business Journal check reporter Alex Halverson. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Bill. Thanks to producer Kevin Kniestet and to Guy Nelson. I'm Bill Radke, and we'll be back next week.